Lucy, by Jamaica Kincaid. Poor visitor. It was my first day. I'd come the night before, a gray black and cold night before, as it was expected to be in the middle of January, though I didn't know that at the time. And I could not see anything clearly on the way in from the airport, even though there were lights everywhere. As we drove along, someone would single out to me a famous building, an important street, a park, a bridge that when built was thought to be a spectacle. In a daydream I used to have, all these places were points of happiness to me. All these places were lifeboats to my small drowning soul, for I would imagine myself entering and leaving them, and just that, entering and leaving over and over again, would see me through a bad feeling I did not have a name for. I only knew it felt a little like sadness, but heavier than that. Now that I saw these places, they looked ordinary, dirty, worn down by so many people entering and leaving them in real life, and it occurred to me that I could not be the only person in the world for whom they were a fixture of fantasy. It was not my first bout with the disappointment of reality, and it would not be my last. The undergarments that I wore were all new, bought for my journey, and as I sat in the car, twisting this way and that to get a good view of the sights before me, I was reminded of how uncomfortable the new can make you feel. I got into an elevator, something I had never done before, and then I was in an apartment and seated at a table, eating food just taken from a refrigerator. In the place I had just come from, I always lived in a house, and my house did not have a refrigerator in it. Everything I was experiencing, the ride in the elevator, being in an apartment, eating day-old food that had been stored in a refrigerator, was such a good idea that I could imagine I would grow used to it and like it very much. But at first it was all so new that I had to smile with my mouth turned down at the corners. I slept soundly that night. But it wasn't because I was happy and comfortable. Quite the opposite. It was because I didn't want to take in anything else. That morning, the morning of my first day, the morning that followed my first night, was a sunny morning. It was not the sort of bright sun yellow, making everything curl at the edges, almost in fright, that I was used to. But a pale yellow sun as if the sun had grown weak from trying too hard to shine. But it was still sunny, and that was nice, and made me miss my home less. And so, seeing the sun, I got up and put on a dress, a gay dress made out of mattress cloth, the same sort of dress that I would wear if I were at home and setting out for a day in the country. But it was all wrong. The sun was shining, but the air was cold. It was the middle of January, after all but I did not know that the sun could shine and the air remain cold. No one had ever told me. What a feeling that was. How can I explain? Something I had always known. The way I knew my skin was the color brown of a nut rubbed repeatedly with a soft cloth. Or the way I knew my own name. Something I took completely for granted. The sun is shining, the air is warm. Was not so. I was no longer in a tropical zone, and this realization now entered my life like a flow of water dividing formerly dry and solid ground, creating two banks, 
one of which was my past, so familiar and predictable that even my unhappiness then made me happy just now to think of it, the other my future, a gray blank, an overcast seascape on which rain was falling and no boats were in sight. I was no longer in a tropical zone, and I felt cold inside and out, the first time such a sensation had come over me. In books I had read from time to time, when the plot called for it, someone would suffer from homesickness. A person would leave a not very nice situation and go somewhere else, somewhere a lot better, and then long to go back where it was not very nice. How impatient I would become with such a person, for I would feel that I was in a not very nice situation myself, and how I wanted to go somewhere else. But now I, too, felt that I wanted to be back where I came from. I understood it. I knew where I stood there. If I had had to draw a picture of my future then, it would have been a large gray patch surrounded by black, blacker, blackest. What a surprise this was to me, that I longed to be back in the place I had come from, that I longed to sleep in a bed I had outgrown, that I longed to be with people whose smallest, most natural gesture would call up in me such a rage that I longed to see them all dead at my feet. Oh, I had imagined that with one swift act, leaving home and coming to this place. I could leave behind me, as if it were an old garment never to be worn again, my sad thoughts, my sad feelings, and my discontent with life in general as it was presenting itself to me. In the past, the thought of being in my present situation had been a comfort, but now I did not even have this to look forward to, and so I lay down on my bed and dreamt I was eating a bowl of pink mullet and green figs cooked in coconut milk, and I had been cooked by my grandmother, which was why the taste of it pleased me so, for she was the person I liked best in all the world, and those were the things that I liked best to eat also. The room in which I lay was a small room just off the kitchen, the maid's room. I was used to a small room, but this was a different sort of small room. The ceiling was very high, and the walls went all the way up to the ceiling, enclosing the room like a box, a box in which cargo traveling a long way would be shipped. But I was not cargo. I was only an unhappy young woman living in a maid's room, and I was not even the maid. I was the young girl who watches over the children and goes to school at night. How nice everyone was to me, though, saying that I should regard them as family and make myself at home. I believed them to be sincere, for I knew that such a thing would not be said to a member of their real family. After all, aren't family the people who become the millstone around your life's neck? On the last day I spent at home, my cousin, a girl I had known all my life, an unpleasant person, even before her parents forced her to become a Seventh-day Adventist, made a farewell present to me of her own Bible, and with it she made a little speech about God and goodness and blessings. Now it sat before me on a dresser, and I remembered how when we were children we would sit under my house and terrify and torment each other by reading out loud passages from the Book of Revelation, and I wondered if ever in my whole life a day would go by when these people I had left behind, my own family, would not appear before me one way or another. 
There was also a small radio on this dresser, and I had it turned on. At the moment, almost as if to sum up how I was feeling, a song came on, some of the words of which were, Put yourself in my place, if only for a day. See if you can stand the awful emptiness inside. I sang these words to myself over and over, as if they were a lullaby, and I fell asleep again. I dreamt then that I was holding in my hands one of my old cotton flannel nightgowns, and it was printed with beautiful scenes of children playing with the Christmas tree decoration. The scenes printed on my nightgown were so real that I could actually hear the children laughing. I felt compelled to know where this nightgown came from, and I started to examine it furiously, looking for the label. I found it just where a label usually is, in the back, and it read, Made in Australia. I was awakened from this dream by the actual maid, a woman who had let me know right away on meeting me that she did not like me. It gave as a reason the way I talked. I thought it was because of something else, but I did not know what. As I opened my eyes, the word Australia stood between our faces, and I remembered then that Australia was settled as a prison for bad people, people so bad that they couldn't be put in a prison in their own country. My waking hour soon took on a routine. I walked four small girls to their school, and they returned midday and made them lunch of soup from a tin and sandwiches. In the afternoon, I read to them and played with them, when they were away, I studied my books, and at night I went to school. I was unhappy. I looked at a map. An ocean stood between me and the place I came from. But would it have made a difference if it had been a teacup of water? I could not go back. Outside, always it was cold, and everyone said that it was the coldest winter they had ever experienced. But the way they said it, it made me think they said this every time winter came around. And I couldn't blame them for not really remembering each year how unpleasant, how unfriendly winter weather could be. The trees with their bare, still limbs looked dead, and as if someone had just placed them there and planned to come back and get them later. All the windows of the houses were shut tight, the way windows are shut up when a house will be empty for a long time. When people walked on the streets, they did it quickly, as if they were doing something behind someone's back, as if they didn't want to draw attention to themselves, as if being out in the cold too long could cause them to dissolve. How I longed to be seen lingering on a corner, trying to draw my attention to him, trying to engage me in a conversation, someone complaining to himself in a voice I could hear about a god whose love and mercy fell on the just and the unjust. I wrote home to say how lovely everything was, and I used flourishing words and phrases as if it were living a life in a greeting card, the kind that has a satin ribbon on it, and quilted hearts and roses, and is expected to be so precious to the person receiving it that the manufacturer has placed a leaf of plastic on the front to protect it. Everyone I wrote to said how nice it was to hear from me, how nice it was to know that I was doing well, that I was very much missed, and that they couldn't wait until the day came when I returned. 
One day, the maid, who said she did not like me because of the way I talked, told me she was sure I could not dance. She said that I spoke like a nun, I walked like one also, and that everything about me was so pious it made her feel at once sick to her stomach and sick with pity just to look at me. And so, perhaps giving way to the latter feeling, she said we should dance, even though she was quite sure I didn't know how. There was a little portable record player in my room, the kind that when closed up looks like a lady's vanity case, and she put on a record she had bought earlier that day. It was a song that was very popular at the time, three girls, not older than I was, singing in harmony and in a very insincere and artificial way about love and so on. It was very beautiful all the same, and it was beautiful because it was so insincere and artificial. She enjoyed this song, singing at the top of her voice, and she was a wonderful dancer. It amazed me to see the way in which she moved. I could not join her, and I told her why. The melodies of her song were so shallow, and the words, to me, were meaningless. From her face, I could see she only had one feeling about me. How sick to her stomach I made her. And so I said I knew songs too and I burst into a calypso about a girl who ran away to Port of Spain, Trinidad, and had a good time with no regrets. The household in which I lived was made up of a husband, a wife, and the four girl children. The husband and wife looked alike, and their four children looked just like them. In photographs of themselves, which they had placed all over the house, their six yellow-haired heads of varying sizes were bunched as if they were a bouquet of flowers tied together by an unseen string. In the pictures, they smiled out at the world, giving the impression that they found everything in it unbearably wonderful. It was not a farce, their smiles. From wherever they had gone, and they seemed to have been all over the world, they brought back some tiny memento, and they could each recite its history from its very beginnings. Even when a little rain fell, they would admire the way it streaked through the blank air. At dinner, when we sat down at the table, they did not have a way of saying grace, such a relief as if they believed in a god that did not have to be thanked every time he turned around. They said such nice things to each other, and the children were so happy. They would spill their food, or not eat any of it all, or make up rhymes about how the end of the word smelt bad how they made me laugh, and I wondered what sorts of parents I must have had, for even to think of such words in their presence, I would have been scolded severely, and I vowed that if I ever had children, I would make sure the first words out of their mouths were bad ones. It was at dinner one night, not long after I began to live with them, that they began to call me the visitor. They said I seemed not to be a part of things, as if I didn't live in their house with them, as if they weren't like family to me, as if I were just passing through, just saying one long hello, and soon they would be saying a quick goodbye, so long, it was very nice. Look at the way I stared at them as they ate, Louis said. Had I ever seen anyone put a forkful of French-cut green beans in his mouth before? This made Mariah laugh, and almost everything Louis said made Mariah happy, and so she would always laugh. I didn't laugh, though, and Louis looked at me, 
concern on his face. He said, poor visitor, poor visitor, over and over, a sympathetic tone to his voice. And then he told me a story about an uncle who had gone to Canada and raised monkeys, and of how after a while the uncle loved monkeys so much and was so used to being around them that he found actual human beings hard to take. He had told me this story about his uncle before, and while he was telling it to me this time, I was remembering a dream I had had about them. Lewis was chasing me around the house. I wasn't wearing any clothes. The ground on which I was running was yellow, as if it had been paved with cornmeal. Lewis was chasing me around and around the house, and though he came close, he could never catch up with me. Mariah stood at the open window saying, Catch her, Lewis, catch her. Eventually I fell down a hole, in the bottom of which were silver and blue snakes. When Lewis finally finished telling his story, I told them my dream. When I'd finished, they both fell silent. Then they looked at me, and Mariah cleared her throat, but it was obvious from the way she did it that her throat did not need clearing at all. Their two yellow heads swam toward each other and, in unison, bobbed up and down. Lewis made a clucking noise, then said, Poor, poor visitor. Then Mariah said, Dr. Freud for visitor, and I wondered why she said that, for I did not know who Dr. Freud was. Then they laughed in a soft, kind way. I had meant by telling them my dream that I had taken them in, because only people who were very important to me had ever shown up in my dreams. I did not know if they understood that. Mariah One morning in early March, Mariah said to me, You have never seen spring, have you? And she did not have to await an answer, for she already knew. She said the word spring as if spring were a close friend, a friend who had dared to go away for a long time and soon would reappear for their passionate reunion. She said, Have you ever seen daffodils pushing their way up out of the ground? And when they're in bloom and all massed together, a breeze comes along and makes them do a curtsy to the long stretching out in front of them. Have you ever seen that? When I see that, I feel so glad to be alive. And I thought, so Mariah is made to feel alive by some flowers bending in the breeze. How does a person get to be that way? I remembered an old poem I had been made to memorize when I was a ten-year-old and a pupil at Queen Victoria's Girls' School. I had been made to memorize it, verse after verse, and then had recited the whole poem to an auditorium full of parents, teachers, and my fellow pupils. After I was done, everybody stood up and applauded with an enthusiasm that surprised me, and later they told me how nicely I had pronounced every word, how I had placed just the right amount of special emphasis in places where it was needed, and how proud the poet, now long dead, would have been to hear his words ringing out of my mouth. I was then at the height of my two-facedness, that is, outside I seemed one way, Inside, I was another. Outside, false. Inside, true. And so I had made pleasant little noises that showed both modesty and appreciation. But inside, I was making a vow to erase from my mind, line by line, every word of that poem. 
The night after I had recited the poem, I dreamt, continuously it seemed, that I was being chased down a narrow cobbled street by bunches and bunches of those same daffodils that I had vowed to forget. And when finally I fell down from exhaustion that they all piled on top of me, until I was buried deep underneath them and was never seen again. I had forgotten all of this until Mariah mentioned daffodils, and now I told it to her with such an amount of anger I surprised both of us. We were standing quite close to each other, but as soon as I had finished speaking, without a second of deliberation, we both stepped back. It was only one step that was made, but to me it felt as if something I had not been made aware of had been checked. Mariah reached out to me, rubbing her hand against my cheek, and said, What a history you have. I thought there was a little bit of envy in her voice, and so I said, You are welcome to it, if you like. After that, each day, Mariah began by saying, As soon as spring comes, and so many plans would follow that I could not see how one little spring could contain them. She said we would leave the city and go to the house on one of the great lakes, the house where she spent her summers when she was a girl. We would visit some night gardens. We would visit a zoo. A nice thing to do in the springtime. The children would love that. We would have a picnic in the park as soon as it was unexpected, an unusually warm day arrived. An early evening walk in the spring air. That was something she really wanted to do with me to show me the magic of a spring sky. On the very day it turned spring, a big snowstorm came, and more snow fell on that day than had fallen all winter. Mariah looked at me and shrugged her shoulders. How typical, she said, giving the impression that she had just experienced a personal betrayal. I laughed at her, but I was really wondering... How do you get to be a person who is made miserable because the weather changed its mind? Because the weather doesn't live up to your expectations? How do you get to be that way? Well, the weather sorted itself out in various degrees of coldness. I walked around with letters from my family and friends scorching my breast. I had placed these letters inside my brassiere, and I carried them around with me wherever I went. It was not from feelings of love and longing that I did this, quite the contrary. It was from a feeling of hatred. There is nothing so strange about this, for isn't it so that love and hate exist side by side? Each letter was a letter from someone I had loved at one point and without reservation. Not too long before, out of politeness, I had written my mother a very nice letter, I thought telling her about the first ride I had taken on an underground train. She wrote back to me, and after I read her letter, I was afraid to even put my face outside the door. The letter was filled with detail after detail of horrible and vicious things she had read or heard that had taken place on those very same underground trains on which I traveled. Only the other day, she wrote, she had read of an immigrant girl, someone my age exactly, who had had her throat cut while she was a passenger on perhaps the same train I was riding. But, of course, I had already known real fear. I had known a girl, a schoolmate of mine, whose father had dealings with the devil. Once, out of curiosity, she had gone into a room where her father did his business, and she had looked into things that she should not have, 
and she became possessed. She took sick, and we, my other schoolmates and I, used to stand in the street outside her house on our way home from school, and hear her being beaten by what possessed her, and hear her as she cried out from the beatings. Eventually, she had to cross the sea, where the devil couldn't follow her, because the devil cannot walk over water. I thought of this as I felt the sharp corners of the letters cutting into the skin over my heart. I thought, on the one hand, there was a girl being beaten by a man she could not see. On the other, there was a girl getting her throat cut by a man she could see. In this great big world, why should my life be reduced to these two possibilities? When the snow fell, it came down in thick, heavy globs and hung on the trees like decorations ordered for a special occasion, a celebration no one had heard of, for everybody complained. In all the months that I had lived in this place, snowstorms had come and gone, and I had never paid any attention, except to feel that the snow was an annoyance when I made my way through the mounds of it that lay on the sidewalk. My parents used to go every Christmas Eve to a film that had had Bing Crosby standing waist-deep in snow, and singing a song at the top of his voice. My mother once told me that seeing this film was among the first things they did when getting to know each other. But at the time she told me this, I felt strongly how much I no longer liked hearing the way she spoke. And so I said, barely concealing my scorn, what a religious experience that must have been. I walked away quickly, for my thirteen-year-old heart couldn't bear to see her face that I caused her pain, but I couldn't stop myself. In any case, this time when the snow fell, even I could see that there was something to it. It had a certain kind of beauty, not a beauty you would wish for every day of your life, but a beauty you could begin to appreciate if you had excess of beauty to begin with. The days were longer now, the sun set later, the evening sky seemed lower than usual, and the snow was the color and texture of a half-cooked egg white, making the world seem soft and lovely, unexpectedly, to me, even nourishing. That the world I was in could be soft, lovely, and nourishing was more than I could bear, and so I stood there and wept, for I didn't want to love one more thing in my life didn't want one more thing that could make my heart break into a million little pieces at my feet. But all the same, there it was, and I could not do much about it, for even I could see that I was too young for real bitterness, real regret, real hard-heartedness. The snow came and went more quickly than usual. Mariah said that the way the snow vanished, as if some hungry being were invisibly swallowing it up, was quite normal for that time of year. Everything that had seemed so brittle in the cold of winter, sidewalks, buildings, streets, the people themselves, seemed to slacken and sag a bit at the seams. I could now look back at the winter. It was my past, so to speak, my first real past, a past that was my own and over which I had had the final word. I had just lived through the bleak cold time, and it was not to the weather outside that I refer. I had lived through this time, and as the weather changed from cold to warm, it did not bring me along with it. Something settled inside me, something heavy and hard. 
It stayed there, and I could not think of one thing to make it go away. I thought, so this must be living. This must be the beginning of time people referred to as years ago when I was young. My mother had a friendship with a woman, a friendship she did not advertise, for this woman had spent time in jail. Her name was Sylvie. She had a scar on her right cheek and a human teeth bite. It was as if her cheek were half-ripe fruit and someone had bitten into it, meaning to eat it, but then realized it wasn't ripe enough. She had gotten into a big quarrel with another woman over this, which of the two of them a man they both loved should live with. Apparently, Sylvie had said something that was unforgivable, and the other woman flew in into even deeper rage and grabbed Sylvie in an embrace, only it was not an embrace of love, but an embrace of hatred, and she left Sylvie with the marked cheek. Both women were sent to jail for public misconduct, and going to jail was something for the rest of their lives no one would let them forget. It was because of this that I was not allowed to speak to Sylvie, that she was not allowed to visit us when my father was at home, and that my mother's friendship with her was supposed to be a secret. I used to observe Sylvie, and I wondered what whenever she was stopped to speak, even if it was the briefest conversation, immediately how her hand would go up to her face and caress her little rosette. Before I knew what it was, I was sure that the mark on her face was a rose she had put there on purpose because she loved the beauty of roses so much she wanted to wear one on her face. And it was as if the mark on her face bound her to something much deeper than its reality, something that she could not put into words. One day, outside my mother's presence, she admired the way my corkscrew plates fell around my neck, and then she said something that I did not hear, for she began by saying, Years ago, when I was young, and she pinched up her scarred cheek in her fingers and twisted it until it would fall off like a dark purple plum in the middle of her pink palm, and her voice became very heavy and hard, even though she was laughing all the time she spoke. That is how I came to think that heavy and hard was the beginning of living, real living. And though I might not end up with a mark on my cheek, I had no doubt that I would end up with a mark somewhere. I was standing in front of the kitchen sink one day, my thoughts centered naturally on myself, when Mariah came in, danced in actually singing an old song, a song that was popular when her mother was a young woman, a song she herself most certainly would have disliked when she was a young woman, and so now she sang with an exaggerated tremor in her voice to show how ridiculous she still found it. She twirled herself wildly around the room and came to a sharp stop without knocking over anything, even though many things were in her path. She said, I have always wanted four children, Four girl children. I love my children. She said this clearly and sincerely. She said this without doubt on one hand or confidence on the other. Mariah was beyond doubt or confidence, I thought. Things must always have gone her way. And not just for her, but for everybody that she has ever known from eternity. She has never had a doubt. She has never had to grow confident. The right things always happen to her. The thing she wants to happen happens. 
And again, I thought, how does a person get to be this way? Mariah said to me, I love you. And again, she said it clearly and sincerely, without confidence or doubt. I believed her, for if anyone could love a young woman who had come from halfway around the world to help her take care of her children, it was Mariah. She looked so beautiful standing there in the middle of the kitchen. The yellow light from the sun came in through a window and fell on the pale yellow linoleum tiles on the floor. And on the walls of the kitchen, which were painted yet another pale yellow, and Mariah, with her pale yellow skin and yellow hair, stood still in this almost celestial light, and she looked blessed, no blemish or mark of any kind on her cheek or anywhere else, as if she had never quarreled with anyone over a man or over anything, would never have to quarrel at all, had never done anything wrong, and had never been to jail, had never had to leave anywhere for any reason other than a feeling that had come over her. She had washed her hair that morning, and from where I stood I could smell the residue of the perfume from the shampoo in her hair. Then underneath that I could smell Mariah herself. The smell of Mariah was pleasant. Just that. Pleasant. And I thought, but that's the trouble with Mariah. She smells pleasant. By then, I already knew that I wanted to have a powerful odor and I would not care if it gave offense. On a day on which it was clear that there was no turning back as far as the weather was concerned, that the winter season was over and its return would be a noteworthy event, Mariah said that we should prepare to go and spend some time at the house on the shore of one of the great lakes. Lewis would not accompany us. Lewis would stay in town and take advantage of our absence, doing things that she and the children would not enjoy doing with him. What these things were, I could not imagine. Mariah said that we would take a train, and she wanted me to experience spending the night on a train and waking up to breakfast on a train as it moved through the fleshly plowed fields. She made so many arrangements. I had not known just leaving the house for a short time could be so complicated. Early that afternoon, because the children, my charges, would not return home from school until three, Mariah took me to a garden, a place she described as her most favorite in the world. She covered my eyes with a handkerchief, and then, holding me by the hand, she walked me to the spot in a clearing. Then she removed the handkerchief and said, Now, look at this. And I looked. It was a big area with lots of thick-trunked, tall trees along winding paths. Along the paths and underneath the trees were many, many yellow flowers, the size and shape of played teacups or fairy skirts. They looked like something to eat and something to wear at the same time. They looked beautiful. They looked simple, as if made to erase a complicated and unnecessary idea. I did not know what these flowers were, and so it was a mystery to me why I wanted to kill them. Just like that, I wanted to kill them. I wished that I had had an enormous scythe. I would just walk down the path, dragging it alongside me, and I would cut these flowers down at the place they emerged from the ground. Mariah said, These are daffodils. I'm sorry about the poem, but I'm hoping you'll find them lovely all the same.
There was such a joy in her voice that she said this. Such a music. How could I explain to her the feeling I had about daffodils? That it wasn't exactly daffodils, but that they would do just as well as anything else. Where should I start? Over here or over there? Anywhere would be good enough. But my heart and my thoughts were racing so that every time I tried to talk, I stammered, by accident bit my own tongue. Mariah, mistaking what was happening to me for joy at seeing daffodils for the first time, reached out to hug me, but I moved away, and in doing that I seemed to get my voice back. I said, Mariah, do you realize that at ten years of age I had to learn by heart a long poem about some flowers I would not see in real life until I was nineteen? As soon as I said this, I felt sorry that I had cast her beloved daffodils in a scene she had never considered. A scene of conquered and conquests. A scene of brutes masquerading as angels, and angels portrayed as brutes. This woman who hardly knew me loved me, and she wanted me to love this thing, a grove brimming over with daffodils in bloom, that she loved also. Her eyes sank back in her head, as if they were protecting themselves, as if they were taking a rest after some unexpected hard work. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. But nothing could change the fact that where she saw beautiful flowers, I saw nothing but sorrow and bitterness. The same thing could cause us to shed tears, but those tears would not taste the same. We walked home in silence. I was glad to have at least seen what a wretched daffodil looked like.